Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how the heck are you today? I haven't asked you how you are in a while. I mean, not not on microphone anyway. I know. Well, it's uh, I'm doing okay. I just want to say though, Mike, that I really am your number one fan. <laughs> that is slightly terrifying, Phil. Uh, but only if you know which movies we're doing in today's episode. And we are. Well, let's we'll let the listeners know that we are recording this on a desert island because we were we're going on a cruise to explore new films and things like this. I don't know why we want a cruise, but we end up getting shipwrecked. I'm on an island, but luckily we've managed to put together a computer, <laughs> microphones, <laughs> yeah. and everything using coconuts, uh, bamboo, uh, because there's all sorts of things going here, and it's uh, you know it's, it's quite nice. Yeah, yeah, it's not a bad setup actually, considering we had to put it all together, you know, by hand with with spit and bailing wire, as they say. Yeah, and luckily though there are a few other people here. You know, they're they're bringing us drinks and things, which is quite nice while we record, mm. and uh, it's all it's all quite pleasant. Indeed it is. Well, now that everyone's thoroughly confused, Phil, why don't you go ahead and fill them in on what today's episode entails? Yes, we were going after the ending of Swiss Family Robinson and the adaptation of Stephen King's Misery. And we'll also be doing our top 10 films of 2013. Yeah, so if you're familiar with Misery, then you'll know why Phil being my number one fan is terrifying. And if you're not familiar with Misery, we're, we're going to make you familiar with it, and then and then you'll understand. After you've heard this episode, you may be hobbled <laughs> by... Uh, by. <laughs> I don't want to be hobbled by anything, ever. No, God, no, that scene. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. I wish I hadn't put that in my head now. Yes, thank you for that. <sighs> uh, but before we jump into those movies, uh, Phil, I believe we have some reader mail. Is that correct? Yes, we got a lovely... Uh, we got a lovely letter from uh, Maria, and it's just great. She's a new listener to the show, but she's been she's gone through a few episodes, and she just she she loves it. I mean, who can blame her? Everybody out there, you love it as well. We love it. We all love it. But it was some lovely words. I only very recently discovered your podcast, so I've had time to listen only to a few episodes, but I fell in love with it right away. It's so genuinely funny, yet well thought out, interesting, intriguing. Uh, this is Phil again. It's just to say that me, neither me or Mike actually wrote this. This is a this is from Maria B, and she wrote this off her own back, her own volition. It was a surprise to both of us, and it was lovely to receive. Anyway, yes, yeah, so, yeah, it's genuinely funny, yet well thought out, interesting, intriguing, and it makes me want to go and watch the movies I don't know and, and think fondly of or rethink the ones I do know. Also, I really want to thank you. I'm going through a bit of a rough patch, but your stories, Phil's impressions, Mike's laugh, cheer me up a lot. Sometimes <laughs> Sorry, that was like a special laugh. <laughs> Oh, that was brilliant. <laughs> Sometimes rather publicly. I may burst out laughing while walking on the street or working out at the gym, which has earned me a few sideways glances. And that's what we're going for. That's, that's right. That's what we want more that's of. Right. Yes. We want to embarrass our, our listeners. That's our number one goal. Exactly. Uh, after all, we embarrass ourselves pretty much week after week, so yeah. we may as well yeah. spread the wealth. <laughs> uh, finally, please always stay friends. Uh, well, a little secret. Neither Mike or myself are friends with each other. We're like Sam and Dave, uh, where you know we perform well. But behind the scenes, we want nothing to do with each other. Yeah, we, we kind of hate each other, actually. It's true. Shut up, Mike. Shut up, Mike. I'm reading the letter. <laughs> uh, I hope you don't mind me saying the bromance is really the X factor to an already special show. The way you play off each other is so naturally and always comes off gracious and affectionate, even in teasing or disagreeing, is quite unique. Uh, all best wishes to you, Maria. And Maria, thank you so much. Uh, I hope yeah, everything's going well for you now and you're laughing uh, out loud and people are looking at you funny because you know that's the way to be i do that all the time even when i'm not listening to anything <laughs> oh no that's why i do get really funny books. <laughs> right. yes th <laughs> thank you i will say maria uh for, thanks for writing in uh we love to hear from all of our, our listeners of course but that that really was a great uh letter to get and it, it, i think i know it made both our days uh brightened up both yeah. of our days yeah. so we thank you for that and so, uh, yeah, a little a little self-serving maybe to read out some fan mail that is, you know, gushing over us with praise. But heck, it's our podcast. And darn it, if we want to feel good about ourselves once in a while on air, well, we're going to. Exactly. Listen, if we are genuinely funny yet well thought out, interesting and intriguing, you know, we're going to we're going to shout that from the rooftop. That's right. <laughs> That's right. For the record, though, I make no claims to be any of those things. 
<laughs> well, but it could it could go on a t-shirt. Oh, so yeah, Maria, there you go. We might put that on a, a t-shirt whenever we get around to making t-shirts. Yeah, that's a, we'll add that to our list of unmade t-shirts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and meanwhile, this just in. Apparently, Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> uh, does like to have like a good tomato sauce with his pasta, but uh, we're not sure what actual recipe he goes for, so we're trying to dig that one out. But uh, this has been the latest from the Freddie Prince Jr. Minute. We'll have more Freddie Prince reporting for you next time. Got to keep on top of that. We do, indeed. We don't want to let people <laughs> down who are expecting their weekly dose of the Freddie Prince Minute. <laughs> it's important. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Let's actually get to what we're here for now, though, which is to talk about movies. So, Phil, what do you think? Shall we start with uh, Swiss Family Robinson? Let's do it. Do you want to give uh, the listeners a run through as to what goes down in Swiss Family Robinson? Sure thing. Swiss Family Robinson, a film from 1960, not really starring anybody famous or directed by anybody famous. So you can IMDb it if you're really curious. But well, wait, hold on a minute though. Here in the UK, John Mills is very famous and we have John Mills Day every Thursday. Okay. Now I know that second part is false, but is he really famous in the UK? Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he was a big movie star. He was in, like, loads of war movies, oh, loads okay. of things like that. Right. He was in the original Dunkirk. Oh, okay. Well, then I apologize. So, 1960, starring John Mills and a bunch of other people who are less famous that you can IMDb. Meanwhile, it's based on an 1812 novel by Johann David Wyss. And in the story, an 18th century family on their way to New Guinea is chased by pirates into a storm. Their ship wrecks and the crew abandons them, but they make their way to a nearby island, along with much of the livestock and materials from the ship, which is hung up on the rocks. Mother, father, very creatively named, and their three (laughs) sons, Fritz, Ernest, and Francis, set up life on the island and survive and thrive. Building a huge treehouse, inventing things to get stuff like running water and food refrigerators, and starting a farm, even finding a pet elephant. One day, Fritz and Ernst head off to explore the island and and see that the pirates have captured two people, an old man and a cabin boy named Bertie, who they rescue. Bertie turns out to be Roberta, a young woman who they take in at the Robinson family treehouse, and with whom Fritz and Ernest both fall in love. Sometime later, the pirates discover the family, but they fight them off using a number of booby traps they've set up ahead of time. Then a ship appears, and it's captained by Roberta's grandfather, who survived his encounter with the pirates. Fritz and Roberta, now fully in love, choose to marry and live on in New Switzerland, as the island has been dubbed, which father is told he will probably become governor of as a new territory. And Fritz chooses to return to Europe and enroll in university. And that is the nutshell version of The Swiss Family Robinson. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So why don't you kick us off, Phil? Give us your day after. Okay. Well, I did find out that uh, apparently... Father and mother were actually called William and Elizabeth, but uh, so let's see. I'll try and call them father and no, mother. No, you can call them William and Elizabeth. I think I, think yeah. I can figure yeah, it so, out. So William's father and Elizabeth's mother. Okay, so. Oh, oh really? After. I thought William was mother and Elizabeth was father. Well, it Thank could, you it could be, you know. It's, uh, back, then, back then, the naming of people was, uh, you know. Yes, they were so progressive back in the early 1800s. Exactly. Okay. They shared toilets and everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> William realizes that things will eventually begin to change on the island of New Switzerland. Their idyllic paradise will see many newcomers once Roberta's grandfather returns home, but that is the price of progress, and at least they will not have to fend for themselves. A few home luxuries would also be most welcome, it's like a bottle of brandy or something like that. He begins making plans. Elizabeth already misses her son who's going away to study, but she's happy that he is going to university and knows he will return. With the ship over the horizon, William, Elizabeth and the family begin to prepare the evening meal. Little do they know that out at sea, something is watching them. Hmm, intriguing. Mm. Okay then, so that's mine. What happens with your day after? Well, Ernst, Fritz, and Roberta return to Europe on Roberta's grandfather's ship. Although Fritz and Roberta want to live on the island, they decide to get married in Switzerland so they can get their family's affairs in order. Ernst serves as Fritz's best man, and the ceremony is attended by many friends and family who are overjoyed to hear of the family's adventures and survival. Then Ernst heads off to a prestigious college, while Fritz Berta, as the Swiss press of the time has dubbed them, because, <laughs> you know, they're kind of celebrities, so they get yeah, like a, yeah. a couple name. They go about selling off many of their family's assets that they won't have need of anymore. They pack up some heirlooms and some sentimental objects, and then they head off back to New Switzerland. On the way back, however, their ship is overwhelmed by a massive storm and sinks. <sighs> and that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bad luck on ships for them. Do yeah, not never on the do ship. not sail on a ship with the family Robinson. Yeah, trouble is, though, now they're living on an island. What are they going to do? <laughs> well, they are a little limited in their in their transportation yeah. <laughs> choices, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hopefully there's some survivors, but we'll have to wait and find we out. We shall see. All right, well, how about your immediate aftermath? Fill us in. Okay, then. A few days later, 
The family awake to find that the treehouse has visitors. A man of Indian descent stands in front of a small group of sailors. The man is in uniform and he waits patiently. William tells the others to just stay, stay in the treehouse as he goes to greet their visitors. He's not sure what to expect. As he nears the group, the man's stern expression is replaced by a smile. So sorry to disturb you on such a beautiful day, says the man. That's no problem at all, says William. I am William Robinson and welcome to New Switzerland. Greetings, Mr. Robinson, said the man. My name is Nemo, captain of the Nautilus, <laughs> and I require your assistance. Ah, very cool. Thank you. I like it. I like where you're going with that. Thank you. Well, uh, what's going on then with yours? There's a shipwreck. Who survived? Well, we'll, Who died? We'll see. It's a month later when Ernst gets word that Fritz and Roberta's ship has been lost. Despondent, he decides that he has no choice but to try and find them. While his contemporaries try and talk him out of what is essentially a fool's errand, Ernst refuses to believe that they're dead. He convinces three of his fellow students, Herbert, Herman, and Alexander, to join him on his quest. However, a mission like theirs will require a ship and provisions, plus a crew, and none of them have the money for that. So they strike a deal with a fledgling publishing company called Signet. In return for financing their mission, the four students will in exchange deliver written descriptions of their journey, giving readers a sort of action-adventure tale to thrill them, something different from the melodramatic fare that is the leading writing style of the day. The deal is sealed, and the four men set out on the high seas. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's it for now. A little more to come, though. Mm, okay. All right. Well, let's hear about this uh, Swiss Family Robinson 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea matchup. Give us your long term. Okay. Captain Nemo and his crew were most thoughtful guests. They had brought some luxuries with them from their ship, although the youngest son, Francis, had walked to the shore and could find no sign of it. It was a puzzle he had yet to solve, but he returned to the others who were deep in conversation. Nemo explained how he had discovered something off the coast of New Switzerland. It's a remarkable discovery, he explained. It will change the very world yet he gave very little details. He hoped to use New Switzerland as a base while he investigated further, and seeing the ingenious inventions that the family had made, he caught William's interest by asking for ideas on how to dig something up that was buried underwater. The next few weeks, William Francis and the kids who were still there helped design tools, bellows, and airtight seals for the project. They were also shown the Nautilus, and were all amazed to be on a ship that could travel underwater. Eventually, didn't commence and went quickly with the help of the Robinsons' inventions. After a few weeks, Nemo came to see them. He seemed excited. We've broken through, he explained. Excellent, said William. But what exactly is it? I don't, don't understand. Its name is Godzilla, and he will change the world. <laughs> and that's my, uh, that's my long term. Very cool. I like it. You just went all over the place with that one. A little bit of this, well, yeah, a little bit of that. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing Captain Nemo would find, you know, being treated by uh, Godzilla. Yeah. And he could take his revenge. Right, right. Absolutely. That. But uh, that's, that's mine. So it's all set up for the third film in the trilogy. <laughs> 20,000 uh, Leagues Under the Swiss Family Robinson. Oh, that sounds dark. That <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, what's going on then with your long term? All right. Well, weeks later, the search progresses. Ernst is convinced that if Fritz and Roberta could have just made it to an island, they would have survived, using their knowledge from their time on New Switzerland to thrive. Unfortunately, they've already searched over a dozen islands, and supplies on the ship are starting to run low. Reluctantly, Ernst and his friends are forced to head back to Switzerland. However, just as the sun is starting to set, a plume of smoke is spotted far off on the horizon, from an island so small it's not even visible to the naked eye. Ernst orders the ship to set sail for the landmass, and in a few hours they arrive, only to find Ernst and Roberta in a makeshift shelter on the beach. They're emaciated and weak, as the island is little more than a rock in the ocean, but they're alive. The crew brings them on board and nurses them back to health while they return to Europe. The Robinson family is eventually reunited on New Switzerland, and they offer official New Switzerland citizenship to Ernst's friends as a reward for helping them. Each of the men accept the honor and then begin writing about their adventures to fulfill their obligations to Signet. These stories by Herman Melville, Alexander Dumas, and Herbert H.G. <laughs> Wells are the only ones published, as Ernst never finishes his. It turns out he's not much of a writer, but his adventurous tales inspire his grandson, Ernst III, who takes on the pen name of Ernest Hemingway and credits his grandfather for all of his success. <laughs> and that's oh, the end. Brilliant. Thanks. Oh, I liked that. That was really good. Thanks. Thanks. Thought a little, yeah. a little fun with that. You know, some some yeah, yeah. adventure writers who maybe had some actual adventures in their lifetime. I got, I was going to have Ernst just turn into Ernest Hemingway, but then I realized he was born like 100 years later than the other three guys. I was like, well, 
I guess I'll strive for some sort of authenticity here. Yeah, yeah. Ernest Hemingway was a legend, but uh, I don't think he was he lived that long. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brilliant, though. No, I really like that. Thank you, thank you. So, all right, Excellent. well, that is the uh, Swiss Family Robinson. Do you how, how do you feel about this film, Phil? Do you like it? Are you a fan? Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I, I, I did enjoy it whenever I have watched it. And I remember when I went to Disney World in Florida when I was 11, I loved going on the... Uh, you know, the treehouse they had there, the replica. That was one of the big highlights for me. Yeah, sure, sure. It's funny you mention that because um, I've always loved this movie since I was a kid. Yeah. But like you, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And, and when I took the family to Disney earlier this year, we went on the the Swiss Family Treehouse, which was one of my favorite attractions there when I was a kid. And I grew up in, in Orlando going to Disney all the time. So I took my kids on it and they loved it. And so, of course, when we got back, we watched uh, Swiss Family Robinson and uh, they really enjoyed it. And I, I actually loved it. I thought it held up extremely well. Some minor uh, racial profiling issues with the pirates who are of uh, Asian descent and might be a little stereotypical. But uh, <laughs> but other than that, I think it actually holds up as a really a really fun film. I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun with it. So uh, if there's anybody out there who who hasn't seen it in a long time, I, I do think it's worth revisiting. It's a really really good film still. Oh, it's good to know it does stand up. I thought so. I thought it held up yeah, pretty well. Yeah. All right, Phil. Well, how about some Swiss family trivia then? That's a brilliant one. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks. I'm working with what I got this, here, Phil. Okay. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, it, this was Disney's first film in Panavision, so one of the big widescreen kind of you know big, make it big, make it colorful, that kind of thing. And as you say, it was based on an original novel, but they apparently junked about ninety percent of it and added pirates and Roberts and things like that. Many of the animal scenes would not be allowed in film today due to the laws now governing the use of animals in film. Uh, I, I, a little-known director by the name of George Lucas, <laughs> yeah. he named Anakin Skywalker after the film's director, who was called Ken Anakin. That's right. I did know. I did. I did. When I I didn't make that connection, but I thought it was interesting that his last name was Anakin. When I was yeah, looking up yeah. the film, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But because uh, uh, George Lucas is a big fan of the film, and apparently the, the climatic battle at the end of Swiss Family Robinson was one of the influences that uh, George Lucas used for the Ewok fight in on Endor. Oh at the man, end of the turn of the I can totally see that now that you say that. Yeah, too. yeah, wow. you can yeah. Yeah, you really can because it is all very like makeshift weapons, and there's like logs rolling down the side of a mountain and stuff. Like, yeah, and they they know the terrain. They're running around. They're getting the pirates as they're coming right, in. And all that right, right. So, oh wow, cool. Nice little thing. So, go if you've not seen the film, but you're a big fan of Star Wars, go and watch it, and then you'll might you know you'll you'll see that uh, what what inspired George Lucas. I like it. Yes. All right, and that is the Swiss Family Robinson. Very good. Let's move on then to Misery. Yeah, this is gonna be a laugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it's a cheerful, it's a cheerful romantic comedy about a writer and the girl who saves him and nurses him back to health. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Right. All right, well, Phil, why don't you take us through the events of Misery? Yes, as we said at the top of the show, it's uh, an adaptation of the Stephen King novel of the same name. The film was from 1990 and directed by Rob Reiner, who also did Stand By Me. Uh, the film stars James Kahn and Kathy Bates. So we have... Uh, Author Paul Sheldon, played by Calm. Uh, he's a famous author. He's rescued from a car crash by Annie, who's uh, played by Kathy Bates, who's a fan of his novels. But he comes to realise that the care he is receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. Meanwhile, the local sheriff, played by Richard Farnsworth, investigates uh, Paul Sheldon's disappearance. But as it's a Stephen King novel, the sheriff gets killed by Annie. Uh, she hobbles and tortures Paul, but he eventually tricks her and kills her. 18 months later, Paul, who's now walking with a cane, meets up with his agent, Marsha, played by Lauren McCall, at a restaurant. Uh, they have a chat, but while he's there, he imagines that the waitress is Annie. And that's the end of Misery. Lots of things going on, but I didn't want to go into too many details because it's worth watching if you haven't seen it. Oh, yeah, it's a really good film. Yeah, it really is. It's a great adaptation. Yes, yeah, yeah. it is super intense. Like, it's, you know, I mean, it made a star out of Kathy Bates overnight. She won an Oscar for her role. Yeah. And I think yeah. it revitalized James Caan's career, which at that point had not been... You know, going so well, uh, but yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's an intense film, but it's got a lot of humor and stuff in it too, and uh, I, I just I really like it. Yeah, and it's uh, it's you can it's very watchable as well, but even maybe even makes it worse when you know what's coming up yeah. and you're there going, oh my god, oh my god, you can see getting ready and then yeah, and it's definitely an edge of your seat, like cringeworthy, like you know what's coming and you're like, oh no. Yeah, yeah, and even even with the bits when you know you know he's going to get away, but the bits when he's trying to get away and he's going, you know he's not going to make it that time. You're going, oh god, he's yeah. going to do it this time, <laughs> right. he's going to get it. Oh my god, she's coming back. Right, what are right. you going to do? Yeah, it's it's. Yeah. It's really a well done, uh, you know, piece of, of tension, high tension. It certainly is. Okay, then, but uh, that was the rundown of the film. What happens in your day after? All right, well, Paul's first post-Misery, I guess we should mention that Misery was like his romance novel series and that he was Yeah, the main it. character in his books was 
she was cold misery, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, and so he was ending yeah. that, which is part of why Annie got mad at him in the first place and, and forced him to write this um, a misery novel. So his first post-misery novel is a big hit. While he lived a comfortable life as a romance author, the multi-million best-selling book changes his life completely, bringing him money and fame at an unprecedented level. The mental fallout from his ordeal with Annie continues, however, and he sees her regularly. At the supermarket, at the bank, at book signings, he can't go anywhere without having a vision of Annie. His nights are restless. The chronic pain in his legs from his injuries, combined with the nightmares about his captivity, make sure he never gets more than an hour or two of sleep a night. Things continue to spiral downwards until Paul's therapist suggests he gets some help, an assistant. The theory being that some non-romantic companionship and a reduction in the stress of living his now very busy life will help him. Paul agrees to give it a shot and puts out an ad looking for a personal assistant. The first day the ad is out, Paul gets over 300 job applications. He sighs, wishing he had an assistant to help him sort through the applicants. <laughs> then he starts making calls. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Oh, nice. Nice. I like yeah, it. Not- I think there's going to be a, a few similarities with, with the beginning, but it stands to reason after what happened. I, I, I can 100,000% guarantee you they are going to end in very different places, though. Yeah. Yeah. 100 million percent. Just you wait. Ooh, well, this could be a challenge then, couldn't I, it? This could be one of those things where we think, no, well, I, let's I, see. I, I guarantee you. Okay. Let's just, I'll, we'll, mm-hmm. I'll let it speak for itself when the time comes, but you go ahead. Okay. In my day after then, okay. Paul still has trouble sleeping. He thinks he always will. The pain in his leg doesn't help, but it is Annie who causes the most problems. She is always there lurking somewhere, just out of the corner of his eye or behind somebody he's talking to. When he does sleep, it's even worse. Annie is right in front of him. And he is tied to that damn bed. On occasion he wakes only to find sleep paralysis has struck him. And for those few seconds, he thinks he's back at Annie's house. He talks to his therapist and that helps for a day or two, but Annie always creeps back. It is only when he is writing that she is pushed far away. It is a welcome escape. When he finishes, he always hears Annie's voice. When are you going to write things that I want to read? The package he receives the next morning is wrapped in plain brown paper and has no return address. Paul almost drops it when he sees what's inside. A framed photo of a sledgehammer and a note that simply says, I'm your number one fan. Ooh, creepy. That gave me chills. Mm. Literally. Mm. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Thank you. Okay, what's happening then with your immediate aftermath? Well, six months later, Paul and his new assistant are fast friends. The young man with red hair is the perfect compliment to Paul. He's polite and funny, and he takes care of all the minutia that Paul doesn't have time to get to. Better than that, he's a creative sort as well. A talented artist who is thrilled when Paul asks him to provide a cover illustration for his next book. With Paul's career continuing to rise and less stress thanks to his new assistant, Paul's visions of Annie start to lessen. It takes a while, but Paul finally does tell his assistant the whole story of what happened with him and Annie, and the young man is completely fascinated by it. As Paul continues to write, his assistant regularly suggests that Paul write a book about his ordeal, but Paul continues to resist. The young man then suggests that Paul write some thrillers, using the experience as inspiration. Come on, Paul, everyone loves a killer story, the young man says. And Paul tells him he'll give it some thought. The assistant lets it drop, and a few months later, Paul announces that he has a new idea for a novel about a serial killer who begins murdering authors. The assistant is thrilled, and Paul gets to work with a renewed passion for writing. And that's where Mm. I'm going to leave it for now. But mm, there's okay. more to come, I promise. This is sounding like one of mine with serial killers. Uh, indeed. Indeed it is. Mm. Okay, I'm intrigued. Okay, well, let's hear your immediate aftermath okay. then. <clears throat> okay. The letters and parcels keep coming. At least two a week, sometimes four. Paul doesn't tell anyone. He thinks he's going mad, but the deliveries are there in front of him. Annie is dead. He knows that. Yet the letters mention things only Paul and Annie would know. Lines from conversations, the various knickknacks she had in the house, and so on. Paul finds he can no longer write, and when he does fall asleep, he's often jolted awake, thinking there was someone in the room with him, but there never is. Eventually, Paul tells Marcia about the, the mail. She is shocked when she sees it all, and the state of Paul. She takes charge and gets Paul to clean up. While she waits, she calls the post office about the mail. When Paul joins her, he looks a little more presentable, but Marcia looks puzzled. The post office have no trace of any of these parcels and letters being delivered to you, she explains. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, man, Phil, you are you are laying down a really good mystery here. I am very intrigued. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I well, can't wait to hear the reveal. <laughs> that's just it, Mike. There is no reveal. <laughs> Worst after the ending ever. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I forgot to do a long term. <laughs> 
No, okay. Uh, you have to wait, but uh, what's going on with yours, Dan? What's with his, uh, his new series of novels? Okay, or? so a year later, the young assistant is sitting with Paul's publishing agent, Marcia, at a lunch meeting. The buzz about your book is deafening, she tells him. You're so lucky that Paul mentored you before his heart attack. As sad as I am that we lost him, when I read your book, I feel like I'm reading Paul's words coming through you. Anyway, pre-orders are in, and it looks like the book is going to debut at number one. Congratulations. Marcia and the young author part ways, and as he walks away from the cafe, he reflects on the last year. The wait for Paul to finish his novel about the author serial killer was agonizing. But once Paul finished it, it was relatively easy to fake a heart attack using the rare drug he'd learned about in his research that left no signs of foul play. He, of course, had a dozen already completed novels about serial killers ready to be published, but it would be much easier having a bestseller under his belt already, with the fame and connections he gained working with Paul. The title was emblazoned in large print across the top. The Serial Killer Diaries, Volume 1. At the bottom of the cover was his name. It was in small print right now, but he knew after the success of this first book, the next book would have his name in large print, bigger than even the title. He pictured it in his head and decided it would look perfect. The Serial Killer Diaries, Volume 2, by Phil Edwards. <sighs> no! <laughs> it was me all along! It was you all along. <laughs> My God, I didn't see that coming. That's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I was inspired... By your penchant for turning people into serial killers. And so you turn you turn me into the serial killer. I killing. did. And when you go back and listen, you'll see that the clues were there all along. Because I gave him I gave him red hair. I made him an artist. I said he <gasps> oh was polite and God. friendly. Oh, it's the polite and friendly thing. That's which <laughs> so there you go, Phil. You made it you made your way into an after the ending as a serial killer. <laughs> I can't believe I killed Paul Sheldon. <laughs> Oh, oh no! I like James Carr as well. Yeah, well, he didn't survive the wrath of of Phil and his pension the for serial killers. So, so when do I get uh, the royalties <laughs> checked out for this first book? Uh, I'll work on that. It's going full matter. I don't know what's going yeah. on. <laughs> no, I like that. It was brilliant. Thanks. Lovely. I had fun with it. Oh, uh, excellent. No, no offense, making you a serial killer and all. You're next, Mike. You're next. <laughs> What was that? What was that? Uh-huh. I see how it is. All right. Well, oh, oh God. Okay. Meanwhile, I've created a monster. Meanwhile, why don't we move on to your long term? Because I want to hear about who's sending these packages. Okay. Mike Spring finished the address <laughs> on the uh, on the left. No, no. Damn, I wish I thought of that. That would have been that would have been. Could you imagine that we both, that we both put, put each other in? in? That would have been crazy. Yeah, we, we would have been. Oh my God. Oh yeah. New listeners. Uh, neither Mike or myself know what we've done. So I just thought to throw that one in there. Okay, yeah, my long term then. The packages are still arriving, but they have changed in tone. Some of them say, see you soon, Paul. Mm. Paul is at his wit's end and sleep eludes him. Marsha is worried about him, but is not sure what to do. One night, Paul finally falls into a deep sleep, but he awakes with a start a short while later. The light was on, and Annie sat in the chair in the corner of the room. She smiled. Well, haven't you been a little sleepyhead, she said. Paul went to say something, but found he couldn't speak. To his horror, he couldn't move. Yet when Annie stood up, so did he. I'm fed up of sending these letters and parcels. It's time to put things right, said Annie, as they walked into the bathroom. I'm in charge now, and we're going to write the books that I want. Stopping in front of the mirror, the broken mind of Paul Sheldon screamed in silence as Annie Wilkes looked out of his eyes. Mm, Chilling. That's the end. Yes. I love it. That's actually a very Stephen King-esque kind of ending, I think. Oh, thank you. Yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I could totally see him it's- writing a follow-up to Misery you know, a sequel to it that that, yeah, would, yeah. that would kind of go in that direction. Oh, that's on very chuffed. It's funny enough, though. I've uh, I've recently uh, become personal assistant to Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, run, Stephen King, run! <laughs> yeah. Finish that book, Stephen. <laughs> oh, thank, I'm glad you liked it. I was quite, uh, yeah, I quite. Enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fun. All right. Well, do you have any trizzery for us? Oh, Mike, you know what? There's not that, much I can uh, do that, with misery. That pun was just made me feel miserable. Oh, that was even worse. <laughs> uh, do you have any trivia about misery for us? Yes, I do, Mike. Thank you for asking. Okay. Okay. Uh, the film references The Shining uh, when it's when these, somebody mentions the guy who went mad in a hotel nearby. Uh, Jack Nicholson was actually offered the role of Paul Sheldon but passed after his experiences making The Shining with uh, Stanley Kubrick, because Kubrick was a bit intense. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> yes. Uh, Stephen King was impressed by Stand By Me, the 1986 film, so he only agreed to sell the film rights if Rob Reiner either produced or directed it, which is quite a good nice. choice, yeah. Uh, other, peop- other actresses considered to play Annie were Jessica Lange, Barbara Streisand, Angelica Houston, and Bette Midler. Mm-hmm. So 
make her them what you want. Yeah. I think Kathy Bates was perfect, oh, yeah. especially because she wasn't really known. Then. I think that so was you just, a big part of... You buy into the character more, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big part of why she worked so well. There are some roles yeah. where you kind of do need an unknown for. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some other people considered for the role of Paul were Jeff Daniels, Ed Harris, John Hurd, and Ed O'Neill. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Ed O'Neill would have been uh, yeah. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a good actor. I, I, obviously, yeah, he's been yeah. doing mostly comedy for the past 30 years, but I, I do think he's a good actor. But uh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But uh, that's misery. All right. I'm your number one fan. <laughs> you need to stop saying that. I didn't say anything, Mike. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I see how it's going to be, Phil. All right. Well, that is uh, going to wrap up our endings then for The Swiss Family Robinson and Misery. It is time then to move on to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein Phil and I share our top 10 films from a year of the past century of Hollywood. And this time around, we are doing... Just a few years ago, 2013. So, Phil, you might not even need your time machine. You might be able to just be able to fondly reminisce about what the world was like in 2013. What do you got? Well, remember 2013 when we thought everything was pretty lousy? <laughs> yeah. Remember that? Yeah, I do. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Hindsight's a bitch. It sure really is. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the UK Prime Minister in 2013 was David Cameron, and the US President was a guy called Barack Obama. So some of the things which happened, I've left out lots of the, the rubbish that happened because... God, you know. Well, as I say, every year has rubbish, but I've left out lots of the, the bad stuff. Uh, so we had a meteor exploded over a Russian city of Chelyabrish. It injured almost 1,500 people and damaged over 4,000 buildings. Obviously, that was pretty lousy, but, you know, also at the same time, it's a meteor exploding. It's, it's kind of cool, apart from people who are injured. Right. Uh, scientists used a 3D printer to create a living lab-grown air. Hmm. So there's, there's uh, a there's movie waiting to, be happen- waiting to happen. Yeah. There. Attack of the lab-grown air. Okay, Edward Snowden disclosed details of U.S. government mass surveillance programs. So I'm sure that worked out well for him. Yeah, I think it did. They made they yeah. made a, they made a movie about him and everything. So obviously yeah, things see? are going well so, for him. Yeah, he's going really well. Uh, it was funny when that happened. There was uh, some people commented on how my brother looked a little bit like him. And I remember we were sat in a pub after this big pub call. And we were sat in a pub, and these girls were sort of like looking out the window, waving at him, and he's going, "Oh yeah," and they suddenly going, "Are you Edward Snowden?" <laughs> so that was. Uh, yeah, Bar- Barack Obama began a second term in office, uh, so obviously the only way is up after that. <laughs> uh, Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio, apologies if I didn't pronounce that right, of Argentina, was elected the 266th, 266th Pope. He took the name Francis and was the first non-European Pope in over 1,200 years. Wow. And Diana Nyad was the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without a shark cage. She was 64 years old at the time, and it took her 53 hours. Wow. So we should all be ashamed, really. Yeah, seriously. Well, first documented person, anyway. Yes, yes. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. I shouldn't shouldn't laugh at that, but yes. Maybe I'll let that one Uh, go, huh? Yeah. Uh, And so, sadly, we saw... We'd, well, we probably had the births of some, you know, amazing actors, but it was only a few years yeah, right. ago, so who knows? We'll get, we'll get back to you on that in about 13 or yeah. 14 years. But uh, we sadly, we lost, uh, we saw the deaths of Michael Winner, David R. Ellis, Roger Ebert, Richard Griffiths, Richie Havens, Jonathan Winters, Gene Stapleton, Esther Williams, Ray Harryhausen, uh, James Gandolfini, Richard Matheson, J.J. Cale, David Frost, Karen Black, Elmo Leonard, Tom Clancy, Nelson Mandela, Lou Reed... Paul Walker, and Peter O'Toole. All right. Well, that is 2013. Mm. Uh, Before we get started on our list, before you kick things off, Phil, I just have a quick honorable mention I want to discuss. Uh, It is a film from 2013. It is called Dark Skies, and it stars Carrie Russell. And I I accidentally misidentified it on a previous top 10 list. (gasps) I had in my head when I was doing that year's top 10, I gave credit to a movie called The Fourth Kind, which is an alien abduction movie that starred Mia Jovovich, but I had mistakenly identified it in my head as Dark Skies. So I'm not giving uh-huh. Dark Skies another spot in my top 10 because I already talked about it just under the wrong name, but it's a really cool, creepy thriller about a family who's being plagued by sort of your typical gray aliens and they're sort of after the kids, and it's really neat and creepy. Um, so it would be on my top 10 list if I hadn't already sort of included it on a top 10 list. That makes sense. It does happen. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so. similar plots, just, you know, I just got the names mixed up. Oh, excellent. All right, so that said, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with your number 10? Okay, my number 10 is the remake of Evil Dead. Uh, it was directed by Freddy Alvarez. Uh, well, it was produced by Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi. This is the one that stars Jane Levy in the lead role. And it's some bunch of kids go to a cabin in the woods. But this time they're going because Jane Levy's character is... Uh, 
addicted to drugs and they want to she's addicted to heroin and they want to try and get out get off it so you know stand in the middle of nowhere where there's no uh phone signal and things like that and things happen uh, yeah. and the fact she's going cold turkey as well uh, so can sort could sort of account for some of the things she's seen and the events that happen but uh, i i know lots of people didn't like this one but uh I saw it at the cinema and I enjoyed the heck out of it. It was gory, it was violent. It's it's uh, built on what had gone before, and you know it did have you know had the tree and things like that in the cabin and all that stuff. But it it it's I, I just really like what they did with it. Good deaths. It was really suspenseful. But the main thing I loved was the uh, the sound design. There's a bits bits where you you hear flies buzzing around and and you could just in the cinema I was in had a great sound system. It just it just unnerved you. There's like weird sounds and low drones and screeching of metal just off off in the distance, and it just really all added together to make make a wonderful, scary uh, cinema experience. And I really, it was. Uh, I thought it was a a pretty decent uh, remake. But that's that's my number ten. All right, I I have to admit I'm one of the people who didn't really like it. Uh, I just remember it being the bloodiest movie I've ever seen in my life. I mean, at a certain point, I think the film is just red. That's all you can see is red. Yeah, yeah. But I just, I you know, it's it was. I don't think it was terrible, but it, it wasn't really my cup of tea. I just, I just think because the original Evil Dead that was banned over here, it was like a video nasty, and right. it was like meant to be the the most the most horrific film you'll ever see. And I remember seeing it and enjoying it. I go, well, it wasn't really, you know, the most terrific thing, but no, fair enough. But no, I can understand why people wouldn't like this one, but I, I enjoyed it. But what's your number 10? Well, I will say this about 2013. Um, I, I, I think that I'm happy that there is a number of films on my list that I would say are little scene films. And I always like to expose people to new movies they might not have heard of or be familiar with. Yeah. And I think I'm about, yeah. about four movies on my list that qualify as that. So I'm excited about that. I think mine is, a, yeah, mine's a little bit like yeah, that. Yeah, it was an interesting year for movies, I think. Yeah. So my number 10 is a movie called Big Ass Spider. Oh, I remember that one, yeah. Uh, it stars uh, Greg Grunberg. You know, everyone knows J.J. Abrams' best friend, Greg Grunberg. He's been in a bunch of shows like Alias, and and he played Snap Wexley in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Um, and yeah, it yeah. is about a big-ass spider. <laughs> it's about a giant mutated spider uh, that wreaks havoc. It's your typical B-movie, you know, big monster movie, but... It's so much fun. It is one of those movies that knows exactly what it's supposed to be. It it doesn't take itself too seriously, so it has a lot of humor, but it still manages to have some uh, some really good special effects. It has some really great kind of jump-out-of-your-seat moments. I'm not going to say it's actually scary yeah. because it's not, but it's not really trying to be. Um, it's just a really fun, fun film, though. If you like giant creature movies, uh, this, to me, is one of the best ones of the past decade. I just It's one of those movies you watch with a big smile on your face from start to finish. Greg Grunberg is fantastic, and he's really funny, and uh, it's just... I, I, the only word I can use to describe it is fun. It's one of those movies that's a really good time to watch. Cool. I remember watching the, uh, the trailer for that, and it looked, it looked like fun, but I didn't... Uh... Never got around to watching it, so I'll have to track. Yeah, that I highly down. recommend it. I really enjoy it. Cool, I like it. Okay, my number nine is a it's a little black comedy thriller by El Katz. Uh, it's called Cheap Thrills and stars Pat Healy, Sarah Paxton, Ethan Embry, and David Keckner. Uh, it's basically uh, a guy called Craig, played by Pat Healy. He's just lost his job. He hasn't got much money. He's got a family to support. He meets an old school friend, played by Ethan Embry, who they were sort of friends, but he's drifted apart. And then they see a rich couple who uh, basically invite them over for drinks. And But as they're drinking, things start taking a weird turn because the couple starts saying, well, if you do this, if you drink this shot, you know, we'll give you we'll give you $10, things like this. And they start basically doing dares and save for money if you, to the two guys. And as that's going on, things escalate. And it goes to dark places. They go back to the house and things. Yeah, they keep saying, well, if you do this, how about that? And it just, and you're watching it the whole time going, oh, no. Oh, they're going to, oh, but it's it was great. Didn't know which way it was going to go. Uh, and you're, you're flinching the whole time, but you just want to see what's happening. And it is quite funny as well. And it's it's worth tracking down. Also, it was a nice little thing we got. To, and it was also on the side to do live for films. Alan, who wrote the review for it, he was quoted on the, the poster and the, the Blu-ray box, which was quite oh, nice. Yeah, it's as fun. he said, yeah. as he said, it was a bona fide cult classic, and I can highly recommend it. All right, uh, good choice. Okay, well, my number nine is uh, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, and that would be the uh, Tom Clancy story, the the sort of reboot slash prequel that sees Chris Pine taking over as the twenty seventh actor to play Jack Ryan or something <laughs> like that. Um, but it's it's I really liked it. It's it's directed by Kenneth Branagh, who I think is a really good director, uh, and he also plays the bad guy in the film. And then Kevin Costner is in a supporting role uh, as as uh, Jack Ryan's sort of handler slash trainer. And I love me some Kevin Costner in a supporting role uh, and I just it's it's a really 
I think, a very well put together film that sort of gives a neat origin story for Jack Ryan, but keeps it exciting and interesting and fast paced. And there's some super tense kind of moments and some good action scenes. And uh, I really I've always liked good kind of spy intrigue thrillers, but it seems like good ones are hard to come by these days. And uh, I really enjoyed yeah. that one. So that's my number nine. Oh, I never got to see that one because they like the Oh, Jack really? Ryan it's films. really good. Well, I recommend yeah. it. Because I, I loved Home for Red October and a few of the other ones. But yeah. I, d- I think I was sort of put off by, I think it got a few bad reviews and then it just sort of fell by the wayside. I missed it. So I need to, I think it's on one of the streaming services. So I need right. To... It wasn't a well-loved yeah. film, but I, I enjoyed yeah. it quite a bit. Okay. Uh, my number eight is... J.C. Chandor's All Is Lost, which is basically Robert Redford. He's uh, he's on a boat in the middle of the ocean, and that's that's pretty much the film. Yes, it and is. And bad stuff happens. Yes, and there's very few uh, things said in it. Uh, but he's just basically gets he's on the boat, and then the weather gets bad, and it's just it's just a, a great film. It's just a one man show, and it's Robert Redford, and he's brilliant. Yeah, and you just can't you can't help but watch it. I I like that film, but I have problems with it, and I think my biggest problem with it is that whole no no dialogue thing. I feel like they work so hard to keep it that way that it gets unrealistic at a certain point. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, like, yeah, I can see that. There are parts of that film where somebody who is really in that situation would be talking to themselves. I'm not saying he needs to have a whole monologue, but just even like a. Oh damn it! You know when something goes wrong. Like he literally would have like something horrible happen, and he would just remain like almost mute throughout. Yeah, and it yeah. really bothered me after a while because it just felt too forced. I wish he would have just let there be a few moments of organic, kind of one or two word dialogue pieces, and I think that would have totally yeah, changed. Yeah, like, oh, come me. on, come on, come right, on, right, like exactly, exactly. Like when you, that's what people do, and and him being that silent to me just didn't work and it, it took me out of it a little bit but it is a good movie I, I do like it I just that's the part that kind of kept it from being a real slam dunk for me as we all know I'm a huge Robert Redford fan so you know a Redford movie not making my list <laughs> there's there's a reason for that all right good choice so my number eight is a film called Welcome to the Punch starring one James McAvoy uh, who I may have a you know, humongous man crush on, as well as uh, Mark Strong and Andrea Riseborough. And uh, this is a really, really cool action film. Mark Strong plays like sort of the super criminal who comes back to London and and, uh, James McAvoy has been after him, but has never been able to put him away. And this is his one last chance to put him away. And um, it's just kind of like this big, long action chase movie. It's just kind of one action sequence after another. And he's sort of doing that thing where the cop is like breaking all the rules to try and bring this guy down. So he's going a little bit rogue and he's pushing himself to his limits and I don't know if this is what London really looks like but it's like the most well lit city in the world in this film it like <laughs> it like glows white it's so cool I love the way the film looks it's got this really great energy to it uh, James McAvoy is fantastic as he is in everything Mark Strong is also yeah. fantastic and it's just one of those movies that the minute you hit play you, you just you know you're pushed back into your seat by the energy of it and it's a thrill ride from start to finish and I, I really loved it so that's my number eight. Oh, cool yeah because that was another one I remember the trailer coming out and it looked I like the look of it and the style and the actors but it's another one that I missed. Yeah. It just seemed to come and go. It's been a favorite of okay. mine since it came yeah. out. It's one of those ones I sort of always go back to and tell people about whenever I have a chance. Okay, cool. I will definitely have to watch that one as well. Cool, excellent. Okay, my number seven is uh, Dallas Buyers Club, the one starring uh, Matthew McConaughey, Jared Leto, and Jennifer Garner, where Matthew McConaughey, he's diagnosed with AIDS, and then he, he goes and and has to go. He, he tracks down the drugs he needs to have because he can't afford them, and he starts bringing it into the into America and helping out other people as well. Uh, it's one of the ones I sort of I didn't, you know. Sometimes you hear about a film, you going, "Well, I like everyone involved, but I don't really want to see it." Yeah, that was kind of my reaction uh, to that film. Yeah, too. it was like it was like that, and I was sort of put it off for some reason. I don't know why you sometimes do that with films, but uh, eventually I get to see it, and I really enjoyed it. It was also really funny. Uh, some great performances by everybody involved. Uh, it was the one didn't Lito. He got the. Uh, they the both. They both did. Yeah. Oh yeah, they both. Of course, they did. Yeah, they both got Oscars for it, and they're both uh, well deserved, in my opinion. I really, I really enjoyed the film because it wasn't, it wasn't quite what I was expecting when I eventually did get to see it. Good choice. But, uh, that's my number seven. All right, I like it. Okay, my number seven is a film called Oblivion, starring Tom Cruise and directed by Joseph Kaczynski, the man who brought us Tron Legacy. Uh, this is a film that critics were not kind to. It did not do terribly well at the box office, and I don't think it's even that well-loved by audiences. But I was blown away by it. I thought it was really, really cool. It was a neat concept. Uh, it looked utterly fantastic. I think Tom Cruise is great in it. And it, it does this thing. I'm not going to give anything away, but there's this there's this quote about, about um, writing and, and, and stuff where sometimes you have to give the audience uh, what they need, not what they want. 
And mm-hmm. I felt like the ending of this movie gave me what I needed, not what I wanted, but I really loved it um, <laughs> because of that and the way it was handled. So um, it's a really cool flick, and it's got some neat suspenseful moments and some neat mysteries to it. Uh, there's one sequence towards the end where it's a little obvious what's happening before you're supposed to know what's happening, but that didn't take away from my enjoyment of it at all. And um, I, I think it's just a cool film that I, I wish more people had checked out because I really, really liked it. Yeah, I went to the pictures to see that, and... Uh... I thought it looked great, and there were some good good moments in it, good action moments. But uh, I was in the end of it, I was quite disappointed with mm, it. See, I don't get that. But I, I loved it. Yeah, I think because I think because you know you mentioned you could sort of see bits that were coming up. Uh, I think there was a few moments where I just it just didn't quite work for me, and I was surprised that it didn't because I like Tom Cruise. All right, fair enough. Okay, my number six though is another Spacebound one. It's Gravity. Very good. Sandra Bullock. We went after the ending about that a, f- a few weeks back, didn't we? Yeah. It was actually a while back. Yeah, it was episode forty-three. There you go. Wow, that's fun. Yeah, it's Gravity. We all know Gravity. Sandra Bullock in space, things go wrong. She's got to get back to Earth. But it looks, it, again, it looks amazing. You, you, it's tense and you feel like you're up there with her. So I've got nothing else to say. <laughs> no, it's a great film. And you know, it's funny. It didn't quite make my list and I'm not sure why. It was in my mix. I mean, you know, I had a, a short list and it was certainly one of my top choices and it sort of just got kind of edged out at the end. And I don't know if it's only because like, I haven't gone back and rewatched it, even though I really enjoyed it. I, yeah, I don't yeah. know if Could you be, know yeah. if that's sort of one of those things where I go, okay, I really liked it, but I felt like it was maybe more of an event than a movie at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So, yeah, yeah. but I do like it very much, and it's a great choice. Excellent. All right, well, my number six is a film by one of our favorite filmmakers here on the show, Guillermo del Toro. It is Pacific Rim, uh, which I thought would be higher on my list actually because I really enjoyed it. Uh, I do think maybe it only came in at number six just because it's kind of a big, dumb, fun action film. It's not a very deep movie, you know. It's giant robots <laughs> fighting giant monsters, um, but I really like it. It looks great. The action scenes are exciting, and there are some really truly powerful moments when the the one character is having a flashback to her childhood and she's kind of the the sole survivor and there's a monster yeah, kind yeah, of chasing her yeah. that is a really chilling moment and i i do love that so uh, it's a great film uh, could have easily been higher on my list if i made this list a different day it might come in a different place but it's a lot of fun that's an excellent choice i like it okay my number five is the wolf of wall street martin scorsese uh leonardo dicaprio jonah hill and margot robbie oh, and also matthew mcconaughey again you know boom boom gun whatever he did you know chess thing yep. he did uh again it was another one of those ones where i sort of people raving about it and it's i kept putting it off seeing it because going oh god the guy you know making money and stuff one of these again but when i eventually saw it i mean it's a long film but i just i i thought it was supremely well done and again it was it was a lot funnier than i thought it was going to be just laughing and lots of points through it jonah hill always uh Every time I see him in a dramatic role, well, more dramatic role than, you know, he's known for. Uh, I I, th- I think he's a great actor as well. Uh, Margot Robbie was just blew me away with, he was one of the first big things he had. And DiCaprio was just amazing in a supporting cast. All did amazing things, but I just liked the way it was, you know, it was fast paced. It just, the, the humor was, was hilarious in places. And I just think it all, it all came together very well. Indeed it did. That was a good choice. All right. Well, my number five is a tie. The reason I put or paired them together is there are two movies that almost everybody universally disliked. And I absolutely love them both. Oh, hit me with it. They are World War Z and The Lone Ranger. I, I'll just I'll, I'll just say uh, I like both of those films, but they didn't make my list. Fair enough. I, I know that um, we've talked about them both on the show before. Obviously, I think they've made some of my top five lists. I think they were both actually on my mm-hmm. top five movies everyone hated that I loved list. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll keep it short, but I really love World War Z. I think it's a great big scale, fast moving zombie you know movie. I, I, I like it. I think it's cool. And then The Lone Ranger, to me, still remains one of the most underrated films of the past five years. Army Hammer is great. There's so much humor in it. And uh, Gore Verbinski, he's got some ups and downs in his career, but he does know a thing or two about making a large-scale adventure movie. And I really enjoyed it. So those are my yeah. those are my yeah. number five. Yeah, if you've never seen The Lone Ranger, people, have a look at it. Because, I mean, some people, again, it was one of those ones where people heard about it. And they as soon I remember mentioning news about it. And as soon as that was up, the people were going, oh, it's going to be dreadful. And I think that was it became a self-fulfilling prophecy in their heads right. that it's going to be right. dreadful. But when I eventually saw it as well, I was going... Oh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Okay, my number four, you've already mentioned it on your list. It's Pacific Rim. Uh-huh. Because as you say, it was, it's a big, dumb action movie. It's it's a, it's a an anime, it's a manga brought to live action. And it's got all those characters you have in the manga and the anime. I think I mentioned this a while back. It's just, yeah, as you said, giant robots fighting giant monsters. And all these tough men and women go, oh, we're going to fight them. You know, it's the, bringing the, the apocalypse is over, blah, 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 you know. Just, just great, and the good fight scenes, and and the way it all came together, where the monsters came from, I, I just really liked it. And the whole thing with the minds linking together, 
That's my number four. I, I knew it would be on your list as well. All right, well, my number four is another tie. And one of the films has already appeared on your list. It is a tie between, and I and I paired these two because they're both based on true stories. Yeah. It is The Wolf of Wall Street and Rush. Now, Wolf of Wall Street, you covered pretty well. I'll just say this. I'm not a big Martin Scorsese fan. I never have been. I just generally don't yeah, care for yeah. most of his movies. I absolutely love Wolf of Wall Street. Even though it's three hours long, to me it flies by. So that that is just a winner hands down. But Rush, Rush is a really, really underseen film. It's a Ron Howard movie. stars Chris Hemsworth and um, Daniel Bruhl, who I, I think is a fantastic actor. It's the true story of James Hunt, a famous race car driver and his sort of championship season. And I know people are like, oh, I don't like really like racing. I'm not a huge racing fan either, but this movie is fantastic. It's that perfect balance of cinematic racing sequences, larger than life characters, you know, true events. Uh, it really just it's a, it's an exciting, visceral film. It's it's I don't say it's different from a typical Ron Howard movie, but it's a little flashier, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll go with but that, it's, yeah. it's a film I just I had zero expectations for. And then I. I sat there and I was glued to the screen watching it. I, I think it's a really good film and I wish more people had seen it. Yeah, well, I, I saw it and it, it almost made my list but it just got pushed out by the others. But yeah, it's, I, I totally agree with everything you said. And it was also because I remember... I remember all that going on when I was a kid. Right. The whole James Hunt. He was one of the uh, one of the racing drivers, even though I wasn't really into racing drivers. Racing driving, sorry. He was uh, he was one of the characters because he was such so, so much larger than life. You know, you knew about him. He was on the news all the time. It was amazing the, the little exploits he got up to. But... Uh, yeah, it was a good film. Yeah, see, I did I didn't I didn't know anything about the story at all, which I think made it even better. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Good, good. Well, my number three is it's a a small film called The Kings of Summer, uh, which was directed by Jordan Vogt Roberts. He's just done something recently. Spider Man Homecoming. That's right, yeah. And this one is basically it's a coming of age comedy drama. It's uh there's a a few boys, they just get fed up with what's going on with the there are different family homes and they end up running away into the woods and building a house with it there so they can live and they basically it's a summer they go swimming do all that kind of stuff and then one of them brings their cushion called kelly and then things you know start falling apart but it's it's just it was i remember watching i didn't know what was going to happen what was going to go but it's very funny the actors in it like nick robinson and uh aaron moriarty and gabriel basso just fantastic and the older cast it's like Nick Offerman and Alison Brie and are really good, uh, but it just—it was just such a beautiful film. It just—it just—it puts you back as when you were a kid, you know, and the, the the summers seem to last forever, and you'd be off in the woods building bases and doing all those kind of things and and running wild. But it's uh, really enjoyable. Just left me with a big smile on my face. And I enjoyed the hell out of it. And that's my number three. I, I knew that was going to be on, on your list. I think we, we talked about this one on our top five films about summer. Uh, where That's right. I, yeah, I yeah, like yeah. the film. I do enjoy the film. But this was a case where I fell in love with the trailer so hard that yeah, when yeah, I watched yeah. the film, it, it didn't live up to the movie that I had built up in my mind that I, I wanted it to yeah, be. So yeah. I do like the film. It did not make my list, though. Uh, all right. Well, my number three is the biggest surprise on my list. And that is because it's a movie starring Ben Stiller who I'm not typically a big fan <laughs> wow, of. Okay. And it is a movie I had absolutely zero interest in watching. I thought it looked not good at all. It is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. A remake of a, a classic Danny Kaye film. Uh, also stars Sean Penn. And I really had no interest in seeing this movie. I just didn't think it looked very good. I, I don't really love Ben Stiller as an actor. You know, it's about this guy who kind of lives this boring life, and he has to sort of go out on all these adventures to to track down this, this piece of film. Um and it's one of those movies that I, I watched and I was just blown away by it. You know, it's it's about watching this man sort of discover himself and 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 learn how to have adventures. And Ben Stiller is terrific in it. Uh, I don't even mind Sean Penn being in it. <laughs> but it's just a really good, powerful film. It's got really moving moments and, and a lot of funny moments and some exciting moments. And, you know, it just it's. It's one of those films that really kind of lifts you up and leaves you feeling better after you've watched it than before you started watching it. And that that that's a hard thing, I think, to pull off for a film. I know there are people out there who don't like it. I know some critics were really unkind to it. And I, I certainly wouldn't have expected me to be somebody who would champion it <laughs> until I watched it. Yeah, but I, yeah, yeah. I do really like it a lot. It, it When I was putting this list together, it kind of just kept moving up the list and up the list and up the list. And finally, it landed at number three. An excellent choice. I, I've seen the film. I enjoyed it. Didn't make my list, though. But uh, I know what you mean. There's some, some lovely moments in it. Good choice. Thank you. My number two is a Coen Brothers film. So it's probably not on your list. <laughs> 
But it's uh, it's inside Lewin Davis. That's the uh, the folk one starring Oscar Isaac, uh, Justin Timberlake, John Goodman, and Kerry Mulligan. And loads. Oh, Adam Driver as well. Lots of good people in there. But it's basically set in the sixties, where a struggling folk singer's in New York City, trying to make a living playing music, and he's also a bit of a grump. He's not he's not he's not very nice to some people, and I, I just it just basically following follows him over the course of a week in his life. And he's just going from one event to the other, bumping into old people, recording music, playing music and auditioning, things like that. And I love the soundtrack. I do like a bit of folk music now and again. There's some beautiful tunes in this one. And I just like the whole the whole feel of it, the whole vibe of it running through. Oh, there's also a cat in it. Yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I think it was... Uh, I just, no, I just really enjoyed the hell out of it. Well, my number two is one of those films that I, I am excited again to get to be able to tell people about because I'm going to guess that very few people have seen this movie. It is called Love is All You Need, starring Pierce Brosnan and... Uh, bear with me, I'm not sure. I believe it's Trine Dierholm, uh, who is a, I believe, Swedish or Norwegian actress. Uh, it is a romantic comedy, uh, or maybe a romantic dramedy, if you will. And hmm, okay. um, let me, I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the quick synopsis. I don't think I know this one. No, most people don't. Uh, the quick uh, synopsis, according to IMDb, a hairdresser who has lost her hair to cancer finds out her husband is having an affair, travels to Italy for her daughter's wedding, and meets a widower who still blames the world for the loss of his life. Life. Sounds really cheerful, doesn't it? Oh, it sounds like a laugh. <laughs> but it is a beautiful, beautiful film. It is filled with humor. It's it's sort of this, you know, it's older couple. You know, you don't see that in romantic comedies as much. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kind of meet cute, and it's that they're this, you know, her daughter is marrying his son, and of course they don't get along quite as well at first. But then this romance develops, and it is it is funny and heartfelt and touching and moving, and it's just one of those films that you know I watched it with my wife, and I thought oh, this looks like it could be good. The trailer was was pretty good, and we both fell in love with it. It's a really terrific movie that almost nobody has heard of. It got such a limited release, if at all. I I saw it on video. But just watching these two together, they have such great chemistry, and there's so much, like I said, humor in the film. Um, it's it's really, really good. It's one of those movies I think more people should track down. So it's called Love is All You Need, and I highly, highly recommend it. Oh, okay. I will definitely have to give that a watch because you like Pierce Brosnan. That sounds good. Oh, excellent. Okay, well, here we are. My number one, then. Yes, let's hear it. You ready? My number one is uh, the best Mario Brothers film you've never seen. It's the best one we've had so far. Okay. It's called Prince Avalanche, and it stars... Emil Hirsch and Paul Rudd, who basically play these two guys who are, it's set in like the 80s, and they spend the summer, the two, these two guys in a red van, repainting traffic lines down the centre of a highway which has been ravaged by wildfire. And it's basically these two guys doing that and looking at what's got, you know, the environment around them, meeting a few people, and they don't get on at first. And it doesn't sound like Mario Brothers, but you watch it, you'll sort of see what it is, what they're wearing, what they look like, and just the way it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful film about two guys doing this job and just time passing. And it's 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 so good. Uh, I don't think many people saw it, but it's uh, it's really really good. Cool. Yeah, that's I have to say that's one I have not seen. I'm familiar with it, but I, I have not gotten yeah, around to watching yeah. it. So I'll have to I'll definitely have to check that out. There you go, Prince Avalanche. Excellent. Good choice. All right. Well, my number one will mark the third appearance by Matthew McConaughey on this list, and it is... All right, all right, all right. What is it? <laughs> it is Mud. Oh, yes, yes. That's a, a good film. Which is yeah, yeah. one of my favorite, favorite films of recent years. I, I think it's one of Matthew McConaughey's finest performances. Um, it's directed by Jeff Daniels, who also gave us Take Shelter, Midnight Special, and Loving, none of which have lived up to Mud for me, unfortunately. I keep wanting to, to really love his other movies as much as I love Mud. Basically, it's the story of these two boys, one of which played by Ty Sheridan. Of course, we all know uh, big fans of his on the podcast mm -hmm. and they meet this guy mud matthew mcconaughey who is sort of uh a, a kind of a fugitive more like on the run from some bad people in town he's a notorious liar the kids don't know whether to believe him or not um and i'll tell you how good this movie is it's number one on my list even though it has reese witherspoon in it so <laughs> that should tell you something but um it's wow. it's one of those films that's hard to explain i i can't really tell you about the story that much you know in terms it doesn't there's nothing i'm going to say about it to make it sound all that interesting but what i can tell you is that there is a series of amazing performances mostly between ty sheridan and, and matthew mcconaughey and it's just one of those films that is is magical there's just something about it that really grabbed me and just didn't let go and it's 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 moving it's sad but it's not sad to watch it if you know what i mean it's an entertaining film um yeah but yeah. it's 
there's just something about it, and I don't know that I can put my finger on it or describe it well, but I really do recommend tracking it down. It's called Mud, and it is utterly fantastic. That that's one which I'd uh, forgotten about. To be honest, I'd been I remember being around at a friend's house, and it was they had it on, but like other people came along as well, so I only saw yeah, part of it. Yeah, you got to watch it from start. I meant to, to watch it again, and then just never got around right. to it. Yeah, so that was that's been on my list to watch because I I did like Midnight Special. I wanted to go back and see that one because I had heard such good things. About yeah, it. yeah, I like Midnight Special. It's a good film, but but it, it it still hasn't come close to for me how good mud is so definitely check it out I, I it's my number one so excellent oh there you go I think that might be the first time that we haven't seen each other's number ones either one of us yeah yeah usually yeah. it's one or the other but I, if if at all that's true yeah usually we've seen them because they're usually pretty big films but this is the first time we haven't seen either yeah I quite like these two lists because there has there, there are some big films on it but right there are some some nice little ones which we we can expose people, people to yeah all right well that is our top ten films of 2013 and that's going to start to wrap up our episode Phil why don't you tell people what they can look forward to next week yes so next week it's going to be our christmas episode because uh, if you didn't know christmases are coming people you better get your shopping done we'll be going after the ending of miracle on 34th street the original not the remake yeah the original the good, well they're both good but the original one is, is really yes. good uh, and also we'll be covering our top 10 christmas films of the 1980s and depending on time and whether you know what we come up with we might see the return of the mighty morphing mini feature Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. But then again, we might not. <laughs> yes. And that basically just means we haven't decided yet. So we'll know next week. Yeah, yeah. We like, to, we like to leave some things to chance, too. You know, see which way the wind yeah. is blowing. Yeah. All right. Well, then, in that case, that is going to be it for this episode. So, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Well, see, we may be fascinating yeah. and intriguing, but we're sure as heck not talented. Yeah, and I cannot read my own writing. <laughs> Elric was a good Michael Moorcock Michael stories. Moorcock, yeah. yeah. How tough do you think it was to go through school with the last name Moorcock? Yeah, I know. That can't yeah. have been easy, right? No. No, you've got to you've got to own it, really. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody starts, you know, skitting, you've just got to go, yep. That's yep, right. Yep. That's right. Had it all before. Be like, there, that, I'm named that for a reason. Bam! <laughs> Before we get started on our lists, I have an honorable mention I need to mention. That's what honorable mentions usually do. <laughs> yes, that was a poorly worded phrase. Let me do that again. <laughs> there's there's a reason for that. Are you still there? Hello? Yeah, that was my impression of Robert Redford from the film. <laughs> See, I'm always about the impressions. Oh, God, Phil, you're killing me. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, think, I, think, I think Jesus once said, yippee ki uh, Pass me the wine. <laughs> he said, <laughs> "That's an actual quote from the Bible." I've read the Bible, so I know. Uh-huh. He said, "Yippee ki yay, mother flocker!" Talking to the the yeah. sheep herders who were bringing the sheep to the manger. Oh no! I think actually he's on the cross. He went, "Yippee ki yay, Why has thou forsaken me, Father?" <laughs> oh, wow! Nothing like a little blasphemy to watch down our podcast. Know, but... Yeah. <laughs> if, well, if, G- if Jesus. <laughs> if Jesus was here right now, he'd be going nice one, Phil. Yeah. I really like that one. It's quite funny because I, you know, I do have a sense of humor. Well, I, I, go. I would like to think so. Yeah, let's cover that yeah. one. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, maybe not put this one. No, there, so. no, you know it's ending up in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to find the right place for it. <laughs>